0: this is jason albert and you are listening to nordic nation from faster skier up in this episode we make it back-to-back interviews from norway last episode we focused on the athlete side of the performance matrix with marit Bjorgen. This time we connect with wonderkind sports physiologist Oivind Sandbach. If you are new to his name, he is one of the key reasons Norway has remained ahead of the sport performance curve in Nordic sport. If there's an interesting question to answer with regards to things like double polling efficiency, Sandbach or one of his students is on it, yes. Norway has strength in numbers when it comes to cross-country athletes, but they also have a Sambak and a cadre of graduate students who keep Norway a step ahead. Sambak serves as Managing Director at the Center for Elite Sports Research at the Norwegian University of Science, Technology in Trondheim, and as if he's not busy enough, he's also Head of Research and Development at the Norwegian Olympic Sports Center. Known as Olympia Topin. There are lots of people behind the scenes uh, that help you know, elite athletes perform. Often those people are sort of unrecognized or we don't know who they are. We certainly know that their research is applied in helping them develop uh, training plans, peaking for competitions, or helping uh, national sporting bodies develop athletes. So, you know, I've come across your research, but before we get into that and, and kind of drill down into the details, can you give a brief introduction of yourself and, you know, who you are and what your research is and how it relates to skiing in Norway?
1: Yeah, it's kind of, I, I had quite a long uh, history in, in cross-country skiing. Now I was um, a skier myself. Um I, my aim was, of course, to win medals for Norway, so, um, but I wasn't able to be that good. So, but I moved to the ski gymnasium in Meråker and uh, learned a lot there. We, had, uh, we were taught uh, about kind of how to train, uh, training science. Um, and then afterwards, I combined uh, my, my career by studying sports science. And then uh, uh, after a while, when I found out that um, I was not able to reach the reach the highest level and compete in in World Cup and uh, for Norway, uh, I decided to start working. Uh, but then I was very lucky to start uh, coaching or crew coaching some of the best athletes in Norway, and at the same time uh, do a PhD and work uh, with Olympia that is the sport uh, support the organization uh, kind of supporting coaches and athletes with with expert uh, knowledge so then I, but then i knew all the skiers i knew the the coaches there and it was kind of easy for me to speak the tribal language uh, in cross-country skiing uh, i was allowed to do research on uh, some of the best skiers in the world uh, and they trusted me and and i So so i was very kind of in a position where I got access to the best athletes uh, they trusted me I could had were in a position where I could also help out with a few things and I think you could call it a learning we we learned together so it was kind of a journey for me to to discover sports science together with the best coaches and athletes in in the world and at the same time being supervised by some excellent uh, researchers um, that that were my supervisors during my PhD so then I was was allowed to kind of combine research with uh, uh, also working with uh, with the national teams and the athletes there and uh, I think that combination was um, was a very it was positive for both sides
0: I want to take one step back how do we pronounce your name how old are you and, and where are you based in terms of your research?
1: My name is Evin Sandbach, is my name, and I'm based in, in Trondheim. Uh, that's in mid Norway. It's actually my, my neighbors are uh, Johannes Klabo, and uh, just a few two houses uh, uh, further up, there we have Elda Rönning, a former top athlete from Norway. We have Jung Christian Dahl and Johan Cholsta, who were very good skiers and also won some medals uh, mm-hmm. a couple of hundred meters further up and we have patten just uh, 800 meter down the road so it, it's an area with good skiers and and uh, also a, a culture of skiing
0: are are they pretty good neighbors they're
1: good neighbors <laughs>
0: um do you also supervise students uh, at the university in trondheim
1: yeah we have uh we have built up a research center um where we—it's a part of the Norwegian University of Science and Technology, uh, where we have the Center for Elite Sports Research that is located together with Olympiatoppen, uh, the athlete support system. So on a daily basis, uh, athletes are training here, and then we have master students. Uh, I normally have between three and six master students each year, and at the moment I have seven PhD students. Actually, three. Three PhD students, uh, two in cross-country skiing, uh, finished their uh, PhD thesis this month. So, so it's it's, and then we have some postdocs and a few professors that are working together with me. So, so we are a good team, um, both uh, supervising students and uh, and also also uh, good researchers working together. So,
0: and how old are you?
1: I'm 37.
0: You're young. Wow. Okay. So one thing, just to follow up, you said that it was, you know, you could build a rapport or a good relationship with some of these national team athletes, you know, as you were building your career as a research because you spoke the tribal language. Um, You know, how how would you describe what that tribal language might be, you know, in Norway specifically?
1: Um, You can say it's kind of... The best coaches and athletes, they do the right things. And per definition, they are some of the best ones in the world. So, of course, they do the right things. And I, and I think, um, of course, athletes and coaches, they find their own way of communicating around training. Um, and they uh, sometimes use very kind of, it can be words that are kind of scientifically not 100% correct. But for them, it means the right things. And then that is a good communication. If you're a researcher, then of course you need to write kind of the scientific, the, the words should be, if you break down the words and analyze them, they should be 100% correct. But in, in this practical world, uh, you might kind of have a more, more applied way of communicating. And I think that was one of the reasons why we also wanted to move the research center to the arena where the athletes train and where they compete and where they can eat lunch with us and we can meet the athletes and coaches on a daily basis because then, then we, we build up a common respect where actually our researchers see that these athletes and coaches, they are really knowledgeable They just have a different type of knowledge. It's more a holistic knowledge uh, about uh, what they have to do. And then they get that respect and they understand what kind of the the expressions and the words that is used to to coach and give feedback to each other, what that actually means. Um, And then on the other hand, I think uh, the athletes and coaches get a respect for the researchers and understand that uh, they uh, can – they have a different type of knowledge, a complementary knowledge that can actually help them. They don't always understand the big picture, but they have the detailed knowledge that could help them in certain areas. And I think if you make people sit together, eat lunch together, talk together, and build up that common respect, then it's much easier for kind of to get that um, the good cooperation where people use their complementary skills to to help each other and to also enhance performance in the end.
0: You know, I came across your research when I was doing um, some background research on Mara Bjorgen and, uh, you know, came across your name um, and started exploring further. And, you know, what I'm curious is from your perception, you know, what sets you and your research group apart from other groups doing similar work around the world?
1: I think uh, it's it's many good research groups around the world. Um, but um, what we decided to do was to move the research centers, move our labs to Granossen, where it's called. This was World Championships in Granossen in 1997. And we now, we applied to have the World Championships again. Um, in. 2021 and 2023 but we lost but uh, we hope to get it in 2025 so this is actually an arena where competitions are going where athletes are training um in in at least the nordic sports so i think uh, a unique advantage we have that we instead of bringing the athletes to the university or to the labs we are have moved the labs to where the athletes are to their home arena and then we have access to very good athletes, uh, I think a common respect. And we built our system around uh, a very good and integrated cooperation with the Olympic Committee that supports the athletes. So, And many of us sits on both sides of the table. Among me, I also have one role where I support athletes and coaches and then the other role where I uh, do my research. And I think that access to good athletes and that... Um, possibility to also apply scientific knowledge into the sports Um, uh, might be quite unique. I think uh, in Östersund, in Sweden, they have a very good, uh, the Swedish um, uh, winter sports center there is is also very much in the same model. But I think often around the world, it's kind of, it's two separated worlds. You have uh, the academics on one side that are that are uh, kind of, the athletes can say they, they uh, the academic arrogance, uh, they don't really understand the problem. But then again, the academics say uh, that, uh, that uh, they, they, um, the, the athletes, they do the right thing, but they don't understand why. And that is not a good background. We try to close that gap and respect each other and, and work together. So uh, at least that's our aim and it's not easy. We fall into pitfalls pitfalls now and then, but but, uh, I think we do it pretty well.
0: You know, how do you guys measure success, you know, from like a, obviously, you know, an academic publishes research and then there's the side of applied science. You know, how do you guys gauge whether or not whether or not you're being successful in your work
1: you kind of come back to our uh our main aims uh so we defined our center that one we are going to do high quality research and that is important because if we if you don't do high quality research uh we don't get things published and um i think publishing is part of the quality assurance process so we we uh we get feedback from the best experts in the world and we um try to conclude based on on more mechanisms where we understand kind of underlying reasons why things work or does not work Uh, so i think that's important but at the same time it should be on relevant topics and questions that are relevant for the sport. So actually the questions should come from the sport and then we try to solve them with scientific methods. So that's kind of of one of our our aims to do high quality research on relevant topics. But then on the other hand, we try to do high quality knowledge translation. And then we sometimes need translators because not all researchers are, are good to translate their kind of their research back to uh, interesting knowledge and advices for coaches and athletes so so then it's to build up a system where we have the the researchers that are doing that type of work you have the coaches and you have those who kind of are the translators both ways Um, and uh, try to create good arenas for effective communication around that
0: I'm kind of curious, you know, do athletes come to you or do you, you know, as you converse with athletes and I want to have this concrete example of like, perhaps the question is, you know, people are, are double polling more on the world cup. So I need to improve my double polling. And that might be the basic question is like, how do I go about becoming a more powerful and more efficient double puller to compete at the highest level?
1: That's it. And do you guys
0: help? Yeah, yeah that's,
1: that's a relevant question. Um, I, have a, I have a PhD student, uh, Jürgen Danielson. He just submitted his thesis on double polling now. And uh, that is a good good uh, example, I think, because uh, you saw that in um, in cross-country skiing, it was double polled more and more. At least it's long-distance races uh, at its uh, double pole almost the entire, or they can, might uh, double pole the entire races. But that happened also in sprint races and also in some distance races. Uh, So you needed more gears. You needed to be a good double polar uphill, and you needed to do it good flat uh, and at different speeds. So that um, was something discussed. Uh, how can we be better in double polling? What type of physical characteristics do you need to double pole more? Is it different between double polling flat versus uphill and kind of full sprinting uh, versus more economical double polling? So during, and, and there was many such discussions at our coach uh, meetings, um, at the, uh, the coach seminars, and we understood that we, we need more knowledge in this area so then we we did a phd in this area where we said that we want to create no understand the mechanisms behind good double polling so then we set up uh, a series of uh, projects where we tried try to understand the effect of speed on kind of double polling biomechanics solutions. Uh, Compare good athletes versus less good athletes and see what are the mechanisms explaining this. Uh, Also uphill versus flat double poling. And we compared double poling with diagonal skiing because what are the most effective technique at different types of inclines and conditions. And then Of course these research papers doesn't give you all the answers but to have one person working three years within that topic that makes that person to read all the research from from austria from the great uh, researchers in in salzburg from uh, from the papers of holmberg in uh, in sweden and uh, pellegrini from italy it's a lot of good researchers out there that has looked at double polling and then we had kind of a group that understood all that, to interpret that, read all those papers, were in dialogue with those researchers, and at the same time, tried to close some gaps in the literature. So though, though, then we have done some studies, which might be important, but we also try to cover the whole area of double polling and understand the whole field of double polling much better and the mechanisms behind effective double polling at different conditions and then again you need to go back and start looking at the physical what are the physical uh, requirements uh, both kind of endurance wise but also strength wise and then that ended up in in one publication that uh, we had a, a master student working on then we looked at men versus women and uh, I had a PG student that actually went into that area and looked at um, Upper body versus lower body contribution, but also what differentiates men and women. Uh, when we see that men are have a larger larger capacity in the upper body versus women, for example, and they also choose different techniques. Women do more diagonal skiing, men do more double poling, and there is a difference between how men and women, in general, double pole. And then that comes up new questions. How can we then get the second best ones to double pole better? Can they learn from the best? And what seems to be the future potentials to do this kind of even better than what is done today? And what can the women learn from the men? And opposite. So uh, I think it created many good discussions um, that in the end will also help the practitioners to to, to, uh, do effective training afterwards.
0: I mean, you sort of listening to you there, you kind of helped answer this next question, which is, um, what are the biggest, you know, attributes to the success of Norwegian skiers? Um, and what sets Norway apart? I mean, you clearly have the ability to answer lots of different questions about very specific aspects of the sport. But in a general sense, what do you attribute Norway's success to?
1: It's kind of, you should be in Norway, uh, just kind of, Trondheim is a very small uh, place, uh, a small city uh, if you look globally on it. But if you come to Trondheim, then you will see that um, there are um, more than 100 kilometers of, uh, of light tracks just in Trondheim. Uh, I think Davos has three kilometers or something in Switzerland, and there are not so many light tracks uh, for cross-country skiing in the entire Switzerland, but in Norway just in Trondheim, we have around hundred kilometers of light tracks and we have many hundred kilometers of ski tracks. If you then go to one of these ski arenas in Trondheim on a February, uh, on a Sunday, then there are families around everywhere. They are skiing They're having fun. They play in the snow. And it's kind of a culture. So skiing is the national sport. The biggest cities in Norway have ski tracks just around the corner. Uh, More than half of the Norwegian population have access to snow within 10 minutes' drive from their houses. Uh, And the interest... So so it's kind of... it's It's a large pool of young kids who learn how to ski. But then you can say, yeah, it's probably as many kids who ski in Canada or in in, in the U.S. or in Russia, probably more than in Norway. Uh, But then we come to the next factor that is important. is the interest. Because if you look at all sports in Norway, cross-country skiing is the most popular one. Uh, on the ranking and has been for many years now And then biathlon is probably number two maybe handball and then soccer comes Yeah in around five I would say so That means that we don't only recruit a lot of kids and have a culture for bringing them on snow in the weekends uh, We also have a high interest so the biggest talents actually choose to do cross-country skiing Uh, and i think in many other countries they choose uh, soccer or hockey or baseball or whatever Uh, but here actually many of the biggest talents actually choose cross-country skiing and it's um, then we have ski clubs with more or less educated coaches uh, who can take care of them Um, and and the ski federation of course educates coaches uh, along the way so we can have good coaches, not only on the national teams, but also in clubs and regions and uh, and on the uh, kind of on the way uh, to the top. So I think it's one, a large pool of recruitment to the large interest for sports that, that makes athletes actually choose to become skiers. And it's cool to be a skier. Uh, um, and they are the most popular athletes in, in Norway, uh, almost, almost all ranks. Uh, and then, of course, knowledge, when there is a culture, you actually people understand how you wax a ski and uh, how you train, the basic principles, is, most parents understand that. Um, so there is a knowledge base and we have a, a coach education system that is pretty good, I would say. And then, of course, at the top level, this means, of course, that uh, media is interested in skiing. if media is interested in skiing and athletes perform well, there comes money into the sport. So at the top level, uh, there are also quite a lot of athletes that can live from being skiers. uh, And they live quite well on it so they can professionally train and recover and take out their full potential. And they have big support from from their coaches on the national team, but also from Olympia Toppen, who come with complementary complementary uh, competence and help the coaches and athletes and they have the ability to have a good waxing team uh, to kind of optimize uh, skis um, that that is uh, of course the kind of the the last part of the puzzle uh, but i think these factors together uh, explains that norway should be one of the best nations in the world and if we do the right things we have the possibility uh, and um, the conditions to be the best skiing uh, nation in the world, uh, I think.
0: Here, you know, here's some, here's a question, and and you're obviously a, a scientist. When you look at how Norway functions, from you know developing athletes through waxing skis, you know how much of it at this point is very much dictated by hard science and not art if that makes sense you know and when i say art i'm thinking of you know the wax technician who's been you know waxing waxing skis for 30 years who maybe has notes written down about different conditions and different waxes that work or the coach that's been working with an athlete who has some old notebooks about you know training methodology How much is there art involved and how much is it just like raw or or how much is it determined by data, if that makes sense?
1: It depends, of course, on the area. If you talk about skiing, it's uh, it's, it's a nice mix of uh, kind of art and science, I would say. We have... uh, that's split into two. We have a research project that's called Ski 2018. It was called until the last Olympics, and now we start up a new one, Ski. It's called Ski 2022, towards the next Olympics, where they try to to uh, work very systematically, that everything that is done during competitions, but also during test camps, uh, also skis, when they test skis on camps. Um, is uh, is monitored and but also put into databases, and and uh, there are specific research projects done on products, but also on uh, on uh, ski grindings and these aspects. But that is a research project. But then you have the waxers on the other hand that works with the athletes and optimise the skis. I would say those are the art- artists, those are the experts. They have the the knowledge. They can do this last finish that is kind of more art than science but then you need to get those two projects or you can call it two two groups to work well together so you have a scientific foundation that you that can can direct the the artist in the right direction and that it can limit um, uh Kind of the the, the the errors as much as possible, but also allow to to do the the final touch uh, that can't be described scientifically, at least not yet. So it's kind of it's finding that fine balance. Uh, be data driven. Uh, try to understand the mechanisms behind why you failed or why you succeeded with a, a given ski, but then at the same time having giving the freedom to the to the waxers so they can use their expert knowledge and experience that they've they kind of uh, uh, learned for for years. So I think you you can't take away one or the other, but if they work together, uh, I think you can get. Um, Uh, The most out of it and very often the knowledge of the very experienced waxers should be listened to by the coach by the by the Researchers, so they actually try to understand. Okay, they did this with success for 30 years. Why do they do it? Can we understand the mechanisms and then maybe we can learn the waxers who don't have that knowledge to do the same? so it's it's not only researchers helping the the waxers, but it's also the waxers um giving away their advices to the researchers so that knowledge can be better understand and other waxers can uh, can use that so so i think that that balance is very nice but it's the same with training it's a kind of you don't uh put up a a training program it's not something you just uh you don't let a, a researcher and a coach write a training program and give it to the athletes and ask them what to do that will be failure because athletes are humans, they have emotions, they have breakouts with their girlfriend or boyfriend, they have uh, bad sleep, uh, they have sickness, they uh, have mental issues, um, uh, and oh, they also have ha- happy days when they can tolerate everything and for suddenly everything worked well. Uh, so it's... Um, it's important to have a holistic approach on athletes. Uh, so you don't kind of come and say Their training science says that this is the optimal session you should do today. That's That will not give the best output. It's kind of working very well together with, uh, I would say that these, these uh, artists, the athletes, who knows their own body, who knows their own situation, make them aware of their situation, make them aware of of how training influenced their, their um, adaptations, how other factors influenced their adaptation, and then implement more kind of, you could call it scientifically-based principles on why and how uh, exercise um, can optimize their, their subsequent adaptations. And I think that, that needs to be a very fine-tuned system where you always kind of hunt for the optimal adaptation you try to apply sufficient overload, not so high overload that you kind of uh, hurt hurt them so much that they get injured or sick, but you fatigue them as much as they can get a good adaptation. And then uh, you need to individually match that load to get kind of the, the optimal output. So I think that's art and science. <laughs> Do you recall
0: as you know, a scientist exploring, you know, effective training and working with an athlete where you had to learn yourself to listen to the athlete more and not have like the strict fidelity to the training plan as it was written down day by day, you know, where you were starting to realize that process.
1: Yeah, it's of course, I... I, I I think I always had that attitude because I, I really struggled to uh, optimize my own performance as an athlete and I saw how difficult that was and how many factors that actually influenced what was the right thing to do. Um, and then my wife was an elite skier, a national team skier in Switzerland and then, I saw that she was totally different from me. <laughs> she was a woman, she had a different type of personality, different type of, uh, of training background, probably some genetics that were, were different. And she needs to b- both think about and plan training differently than I did. And then I started to coach athletes, and I realized that these athletes actually need different types of stimuli to take out their potential and then you you learn that this is not just giving an athlete a program and saying this is the best program for you but um but it's um uh, it's a more complex process than that and then i was also lucky to start working very closely with um, with uh, turan hetland at uh, the end of his career he was olympic champion he was world champion and he was uh, Allowing me to help him with his training and to ask questions, but at the same time, he, w- he had many success stories that he could learn me and also many failures that he had learned from. So that was a very uh, nice start for me as a young researcher to work with Turana. that had all that uh, on a daily basis. I think we had 250 training sessions a year together uh, for those years. And I think then then you you realize that you need to listen to the athletes, you need to respect the athletes, and you need to to really understand their perspective before you can give very strict advices.
0: Let's uh, talk a little bit about your specific research and, and um, but a couple of things that I was interested in is you know as I looked at the literature um, that you've been involved with and and one had to do with development of of equipment. And, um, you know, I'm wondering if you can describe how have you been involved with developing equipment and what exactly that looks like?
1: Yeah, it's kind of my, my role is not to develop uh, equipment. Uh, I think there is an industry working with equipment and uh, we have partners uh, in that industry that uh, aim to develop better equipment for athletes. I also uh, work with engineers uh, and I'm lucky to work with uh, with people kind of work developing and utilizing kind of different types of, of sensors that can measure effects on equipment. So kind of my, my role in that is to understand skiing, skiing technique, skiing physiology, physiological characteristics of the skier, and then uh, how to measure. Um, Changes in technique, changes in performance, um, and then, uh, of course, uh, the, lo- the load of the work. So, that is kind of a, a typical example of uh, a cross interdisciplinary work where someone has, they want to utilize this knowledge to optimize skis, but we want to develop good methodologies where we can measure performance accurately in the field because you obviously have to ski in the field, it's hard to ski in the lab. Um, you need snow when you need outdoor conditions and then for us it was important to be able to measure uh performance uh, what type of technique do you use how are you, the kinematics of that uh, or the temporal patterns during that technique uh, speed differences in different types of terrain and conditions and then if you have good measurements of that uh, then engineers together with the industry that try to adapt equipment Can also measure uh, if changes in equipment gives a real effect uh, while skiing so that has been my role in in that type of studies and then of course we had had a a phd student working with his project was called ski innovation so we we tried to look at the binding uh, systems we looked at the effect of weight the effect of hinge positioning looking at the clap skate could that be implemented to cross-country skiing so then, then we had kind of a very nice work together with those with the engineering understanding and us who understood human performance and and uh, movement. Uh, so that has been, and I think that type of cross interdisciplinary work is uh, is the future uh, because and it's very if you want to work with applied research, uh, you. You, you kind of need to, to work interdisciplinary. And that, that has been really interesting work because you can learn from other fields and also implement your own findings and research into other fields, for example, testing equipment.
0: You know, and I came across, I think the paper was called The Evolution of Champion Cross-Country Skeeter Training from Lumberjacks Professional Athletes. You know, obviously there's been a lot of investment in particular from a country like Norway in uh, developing and training, you know, elite athletes in skiing. And if you want to speak specifically about your own research, what have you learned about how to create, and and maybe that's the wrong word, but create uh, a more efficient champion?
1: I can say If I can zoom a little bit back, if it's okay? Oh, of course. I can tell you about the background of that paper. That was in 2008 when um, Norway struggled a bit, especially on the man's side, where also Marit Bjørgen had a problem, and the female skiers were not as strong as they were before. Uh, and then was big discussions about training, training physiology, how should we train, and a lot of confusion. And then I was asked by the Ski Federation to do a project where they said that uh, we need to develop or redevelop the, the, the Norwegian training philosophy. Uh, and then we started a three-year project, or it's kind of, you can say a 10-year project because we are still not finished, but, uh, <laughs> but, uh, but uh, what we did was initially to kind of go back in history and say what can we learn from the future champions because kind of people if you look at the uh, physics uh, newton laws was developed many hundred years ago but uh, we still believe in them There were smart people also earlier what can we learn what are the commonalities between f- previous champions and today's champions and what can we learn from how champions have developed their training because we know that the skiing has changed. Equipment has changed, Uh, race format has changed, the tracks has changed, conditions have changed, but then we can look at how has these, what are the commonalities between these champions and how have they developed the training along with the changes in, in the demands of skiing. And if we can understand the future, at least we have an idea of how we can predict the future. So that was our idea. So we went back in time we interviewed uh, all living uh, champions in Norway uh, I had Odvar Bro our the famous uh, cross country skiing and world champion from Norway uh, he uh, worked together with me and he still does so he was he was uh, traveling around with me and uh, partly with Aspen Tunnason from Olympic Open and then we went around interviewing uh, former champions to understand uh, how they're trained, how they have lived, how they thought, I also got access to their training. And um, many of them had very good training diaries and also test logs that we can learn from. And then we put this together um, and we wrote a book about it. So we kind of connected all that knowledge from all these champions together with the available scientific knowledge. And, and wrote a book that's called uh, The Norwegian Book of Cross-Country Skiing.
0: And, and is, it, uh, is it actually published in English, or is it only in Norwegian, the actual document?
1: Yeah, it's, it's only in Norwegian, unfortunately. Yeah, so yeah. if someone wants to translate it, we will be happy to to do that. Uh, no, so the, then the idea was, uh, we worked also very closely with the national team coaches. Every second month, we had the coaches meeting and try to understand what are we doing today. So, okay, what can we learn? What has changed? And how can we now meet the future in even better way? So that was kind of the way we gathered uh, the knowledge from understanding kind of the evolution. So we could go back to the lumberjacks, those who were actually out in the woods and their their, um, typical training days from the champions in the sixties where they walked, let's say 50 minutes, to their working place um, in varying mountain terrain. They carried equipment and a backpack, and then they did timber work for two and a half hours. It's really hard work. You could call it strength training. I would say it was maximal to, so maximal to maximal uh, kind of endurance based strength training. Uh, and, uh, And they had quite high heart rate as well uh varied between 60 to 75% of maximal heart rate uh and did some heavy lifts uh, so this was hard work and it was and also we found out they adapted the work to be ski specific so they tried actually to do uh that type of work in a way that that uh, simulated skiing then they had lunch and then they worked again for 2 hours and then they um uh, Uh, normally had a run they could run for an hour with a little bit higher intensity back and then they came home and uh, and rested so it was it was kind of kind of hard training work Uh, they did a lot of physical activity but then this trend the transition came um, uh, I think Odvar Bro and Ivar Formo were the first Norwegians uh, in the 70s who were Uh, kind of professional cross-country skiers and then they then they had to change the specific training because they they didn't have all that kind of base work as these lumberjacks had so you needed to to have a lot of running in soft terrain and all these types of stuff they implemented some roller skiing because the roller skis were good enough to then do good training so they could do more specific training but uh, they they need to also compensate by doing the basic work and now when we come to our days it's very specific goal-oriented training on most sessions but in order to stay injury-free and to kind of have the kind of the basic uh, physics of the body we kind of still do a lot of those kind of the long runs in the moor or the marshland. I don't know what you call it in English, marshland, probably soft terrain, Mm -hmm. running in soft terrain. You do uh, hours in the gym where you kind of do basic type of strength, uh, endurance-based strength training um, combined with with, uh, especially core training. Uh, to kind of still have those basic skills that they naturally had in the 60s. So it's a lot of common aspects. And it's um, I think the, the positive thing is now that we can do it more specifically. You can do things at higher speeds. We have roller skis that are good enough to simulate cross-country skiing in a much better way. We have roller ski tracks uh, that are important to to be allowed to do enough skating. But at the same time, assure that kind of the, to tolerate enough total training over time, you need to maintain this basic stuff that was naturally implemented earlier. So it's, and then if, when we try now to pro, progress into the future, it's kind of to, to um, maintain the success factors, but still be more specific, maybe individualize the training a bit more. Uh, and um, and and implement kind of small small new things that can uh, for example, it goes faster now with its higher speeds, the sprints, the attacks you need to put in specific elements that makes uh, athletes handle that in a good way but uh, ma- many aspects are, are common still
0: you I think you spoke about the project. That led to maybe writing that article and the interviewing of the athletes began in maybe 2007 or 2008 when there was the Norwegians weren't being as successful as they are currently or they had been in the past. What were some of the findings about why the performances weren't necessarily up to standards?
1: I think it was some, um, you could say, Norway had a problem in skating. Uh, That was one of the issues. This is a good example. And then uh, I think many focused on technique and kind of the details in the technique. But one of the findings we found were that we don't skate enough. We don't skate enough hours and we don't skate enough in, um, I would say, specific terrain, in roller ski tracks. So then uh, at the same time, it was built a lot of roller ski tracks in Norway. And then I think the implementation of the roller ski tracks Uh, So they could kind of train in the specific terrain on roller skis and then doing more roller ski skating That was as easy as that But it's kind of it's not so easy to see that when you are in your own kind of bubble and you everyone else does the same so uh, It's kind of but when you zoom out and you kind of look at More the the mechanisms behind why some things work how the skiing has moved obviously we should have started earlier to skate more and to skate more in, in, um, in uh, specific terrain. And especially in the uphills where kind of in Norway, it was a lot of skating on, on the more flat roads. When in middle Europe, uh, it was skating in the, up the Alps. So that was one example. Another example is that uh, on some other Norwegian teams, they didn't train enough. It was too low volume. Compared to what Björn Dale, Weger, Ulvang, Odvar Brå Odvar, also Ivar Formo, the previous champions had done, it, it was too low volume. Some of the athletes could succeed well. Petter Nurstuk was one of them. He, he is not the one who's training the most, but he, it works for him. But as a team in general, it was too low volume. Uh, and that was uh, one of the main thing was to increase the volume, increase the volume of low intensity and also make sure they um, they run enough because kind of three hours on the bike is not the same as three hours running. So it was more running uh, in varied terrain and was higher volume uh, was one of the main aspects. And then of course you come to these small aspects that where we see that when people thought that it was genetics that made Petra Nurtuk sprint fast because he was the only one who was really winning races these days uh, then uh, when we found out that uh, there was no coincidence at all that he won the sprints, because he had trained systematically on these sprints since he was 15 years old. Uh, he did it almost every day since he was 15 years old. So that was implemented in his training for many, many, many years. And then when he came up, he he had the skills not because he was naturally fast, but because he had train them, and he had implemented it into long sessions, short sessions, high-intensity sessions, and his body was, over many years, adapted to uh, follow attacks, to take leads, and to sprint in the end. And, of course, that those who wanted to win sprints needed to implement such aspects in their training. So so that type of findings were examples of uh, of what we we discussed, but we we never implemented anything. It was the coaches who implemented it and the athletes who trained. And I don't. I think many of the athletes uh, almost don't know about this project. I think the 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 coaches who were there they know very well about it because they were well involved. But it was uh, in the end, the athletes need to feel that it's it's their training. They have their ownership, and it's kind of they get influenced by their coaches. They get Kind of um, be motivated to do some changes, but in the end, they need to own their their prog- program and their progress. So, 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 so it didn't kind of. I don't think it led to results the first year or the second year, but gradually, this good discussions around training was um, uh, was also changing some trends. I think.
0: I, I do want to get into Mart Bjorgen. You know the the big research paper you had that had to do with her training logs. But before we get there, I'm I'm just kind of curious, you know, that you brought up, you know, Peter Nordtug and, you know, he had been training specifically to develop capacities to deal with sprinting or deal with, you know, high paced attacks in a distance race since he was say 15. Is that the same for a guy like Claybo? I mean, it sounds like he's a neighbor. I'm sure that you guys have had conversations or you've had conversations with his grandfather and he's a young guy. I think he might be 22 at this point. How would you describe his ability to dominate the way he has at such a young age? You know, was it training specifically starting at 15 or is it just uh, you know, massive power and view to max attribute?
1: I think uh, Johannes is a good example. He's, um, he's of course trained very consciously. They, by- they, kind of built up his training over many years and they have a very good plan, uh, of kind of a stairs of development. Uh, he has, he, in his family around him, his uh, grandfather has followed him on, on sessions almost every day. Uh, and his father is also very close and his mother and his brother, and it's a kind of a skiing family. So, so although he had coaches along the way, he went to ski gymnasium and he's been on the national team. So he's been, he's got a lot of attention all the time. So, so he's, he's been followed up very closely, but at the same time, uh, he's, I think he's had quite good ownership in his own training. It seems like he takes also in the end, he takes his own decisions, but he got very well supported and challenged to take the right decisions. Uh, and I think that's, um, that's important. You need a support system. You need a coach. And I think um, having a good kind of coach-athlete interface is important to optimize. Uh, you need a team around you uh, and uh, to train in a team that he's had all the time. But also, he's, able to, he's optimized his, the use of self-regulation. I think he has very clear goals of his training sessions. And when he trains, he's very present, he's also playful. So he's, he's kind of innovative, playful, creative, so he can uh, try to develop further his own technique and his own way of solving uh, races. And, and of course, when you have a good support team around you, you are also challenged to debrief and to understand, okay, what did I do today? uh what can i do better next time and so you kind of go into a learning circle where you constantly learn from experiences you use them to prepare even better and then this is an ongoing process where you you where you continuously try to do you keep the main principles of your training but you are are um, continuously striving to things a little bit better than yesterday and I think thats what characterizes uh, him and then of course they understood um, early the demands of the sport of course he, he has done his sprinting he has done his um, his uh, gym work and he's done his endurance works but uh, I think he combines that with a very unique technique and tactical skills that that he has developed. Of course, consciously, but also in a, you could call it a playful way. <laughs> so it's, it's not taking away play and fun during training. Um, and that you can almost see that when he competes.
0: Okay. So let's talk a little bit about, um, you know, how I first came across your name again, as I had mentioned, was this, this article that I'll link to having to do with a, a very thorough analysis of, uh, Marit Bjorgen's training logs uh, over over a ten year period. I believe the logs uh, documented. Um, yeah, you know what did you learn from examining those logs and how it related to you know Marit's ability to perform at a top level? Because there was a period there where she struggled, and in the latter part of her career. It seems she trained it, she changed her paradigm and was quite successful. Yeah.
1: First of all, I, I just want to say that this is a, a, a unique operation between Marit and Guro Strømsolle. So Guru, that is first author on that paper, was on the national team with Marit and they were also roommates for many years. And she was, I think she has a few podium places in World Cup. So. So it's uh, she's my now my my PG student. So what I what I say now is mainly learn from guru and from Marit, uh, but I think Marit would have said that um, in that process um, where she because she she got quite good progress by uh, changing her training. She did more block periodization. She did uh, high intensity blocks, and um, at the same time, increased her volume and got very good results. Uh, we must remember she had three, three gold medals uh, already in the in the World Championships um, uh, early in her career, 2005. So that was a, a great uh, season. And um, and uh, but then I think it's many reasons. Of course, she she had some sickness uh, and asthma problems. Uh, she also had. Um, Maybe she had taken out the potential of that type of training model, because it's I think that that is a model that can give quick results. And of course, block periodization is not very, I would say, mystical about that. All skiers do that in the season. So when you come to the season if you do to the ski and you do the mini tours and you do a competition Three competitions in a row and then you prepare the day four, you have three four high intensity sessions after each other So actually during the the season you you polarize your training more you 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 block into competition blocks uh, And then you do more low intensity in the training periods in between competitions so this block periodization is something all skiers do during the competitive season but what they did was they did it all year round. And I think they just took out the potential of that type of training and you need a new type of stimuli. And then I think they should have uh, changed a bit their training earlier. Um, and I think uh, I think they continued to do what they had success with for such a long time. Because it, it's a bit of a risky model. So much high intensity uh, increases the risks of of kind of uh, overtraining it increases the risk of, of uh, sickness I think if you're not monitoring it very well. So so I think just at some point it, it tipped for Marit and she couldn't take out her full potential. So and then she, she should probably have taken ownership of her training a bit earlier and also kind of changed the training instead of trying the same one that didn't work anymore uh, she should just change her training a bit earlier but uh, i think during that process she also she both learned a lot about herself uh, she learned to take ownership on her training that there was a common ownership between her and uh, and the coach to to have a more equal ownership there uh, and i think she she learned uh, also How the body should respond to training and she learned to listen to her body to listen to the signals when to push when to stop Uh, And maybe it also helped her motivation uh, to continue her career because When she came back, she was probably more uh, even more um, Happy to get the good results uh, Than ever before because she had struggled for quite a while. So So I think that uh, it's, it's very difficult to find one thing that uh, was learned from it, but I think it's, um, uh, it, it's several aspects that contributed to it, and, uh, and I think one of the things I take out of it is that an athlete shouldn't do exactly the same thing for such a long time, and although something gives success, it doesn't mean that if you double it, it gives double success. It's kind of finding the right mix, optimizing that right mix at the same time, but always be aware of the responses to the training. Too many people think about the program. The program usually has so and so many high intensity sessions, so and so many strength sessions without, and that can be correct, but you need to adapt that and have main focus on the output of the training, because that's what counts. Not the input, but the output, the adaptations. So focus on optimizing the adaptations instead of optimizing the the, the program, if you understand. that. Uh, but of course, that that is is a it's a process of you shouldn't lose track, but you should still be able to to uh, do uh, changes. Um,
0: Can you give a, a concrete example of where you know you, you're focusing on the output? rather than the program, you know, is that makes, just so yeah. I'm trying to get a real good grasp on that.
1: Yeah, it, it can, for example, be, uh, many athletes, they say that my plan this year is to train 800 years, like 800 hours per, per year, and so on so many percent high-intensity training, and so and so many percent strength training, and then they set up the program. And then um, they uh, do It's kind of, they take uh, the last week in order to get those 80 hours to fulfill their their plan that year, they do that extra three-hour run. But that extra three-hour run might might actually then be uh, the tipping factor that makes you sick or overtrained or that doesn't allow the body to adapt positively to training. So if you didn't do that, if you rested instead of doing that three-hour run, you would have been... Uh, healthy and you would have gotten the extra energy for the muscles and and the heart and the means to to uh, get an adaptation instead of that you push the body even one step down so so that's kind of my way of exemplifying that then you shouldn't have done that three hour, extra 3 hour run to get the 80 hours you needed that month to fulfill your program, but the right thing was actually to take a, re- a day off to then make, allow the body to get to the top. And then it, then of course you should ask that, the was, why did you have to take an extra day off? And that might be, you no, know, I was to a party and I shouldn't have been there. Okay. Uh, you shouldn't punish yourself by doing that session. If you went to the party, you should just take it away. And then the punishment is probably that you are not, will not be as good as you could have been. But the, the worst thing you do is to do that session because that will take away the entire effect of training that you could have gotten. So it's it, it's kind of, you need to still search the consequences. What, what were the reasons why you, why you couldn't do as planned? Because you, you, of course, planned because you thought it was optimal. But then these are just humans. They, yeah, my, my girlfriend broke up. Okay, you need to, and and um, I have major problems. I I can't sleep at night. Okay, what do you do then? You need you reduce training, because an athlete who doesn't sleep um, can't train optimally. Then you just need to help that athlete to <laughs> to come over the the broken heart and understand that you need to take down training is not probably physiologically optimal, if in a normal condition, but at this time that was what was optimal. And it's kind of, that is the holistic perspective a, a coach needs to have on these athletes to um, to do this, um, uh, take these decisions together with athletes. Um, but, but at the same time, try to optimize everything that is around training so so they can train as good as possible. But uh, when things happen, you need to take the consequences, not to fulfill the program, but to get the right adaptations. Great, wise words.
0: Well, is there anything that I should have asked, or we should have anything that that uh, you'd like to add?
1: No, I'm I, I, I just like discussing about training so I I, uh, I think you asked many interesting questions and I, I hope uh, hope you got something out of it
0: so well thank you for your time uh, really appreciate it and thanks for your work you've you've uh, I have a lot of reading to do
1: <laughs> do that and if you need something more then you just tell me great yeah have a great day bye Thanks for listening to Nordic Nation.